So Joshua chapter 10, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your people gathered. We thank you that you've enabled us and called us to be here. We pray that you would help us to be attentive to hearing the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, that the, the preaching of the word would be faithful to your text, to your spirit, and that you would um, change us and make us more like Christ even by what we hear. Um, as this is a means of grace, something that you use. You've told us that you use the preaching of your word, not just to save sinners, but to transform um, believers more and more into the righteousness of Christ. So, Lord, help us to, to be hungry and thirsting after your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'm going to do, because this is a, 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 there are longer chapters in the Bible, but this is a longer one. So rather than read all the way through it and then go back again and talk about it, we're going to break it up into little sections and um, see if I can get through this without coughing the whole time. There we go. Thank you, Ryan. So <clears throat> beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read the first two verses here. Um, as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai, that's the city Ai, and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, <clears throat> and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. Word of the Lord. So there's a couple of things here. First of all, it's like remembering what has happened in the past verse. These people, um, past chapter, these people have actually heard of the, the power of God coming through and what they were doing to the inhabitants of the land. And so they came up with a scheme to make it appear as if they were from far away because they'd also heard that the people of Israel weren't not, were, were not supposed to make covenants or make peace with the people in the land. So they pretended to be way far away, and they had this elaborate ruse they had come up with, and you can read about it in chapter 9, the Gibeonite deception. But it works, and they have a covenant made. But it's all the more interesting that they were this afraid, and they did all this, because even within the land of Canaan, the king of Jerusalem, and it's not yet taken by Israel, <coughs> feared this, these people. And all, he says even that all its men were warriors. So you had this nation of Gibeon that was full of warriors that felt like they needed to do at any cost what was necessary to be at peace with Israel. Because if Israel comes in, they're done. That their own personal power was not going to be able to withstand Israel and Israel's God. And so you know, it's an amazing thing. And so what they're seeing is what they saw and what the king Adon, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sees. And if you want to do points, this is the first point. That you're either devoted to Israel or you're devoted to destruction. So they were either devoted to Israel or they were devoted to destruction. Now we don't look at this today. You know, we're either devoted to Israel or we're devoted to destruction. But in the same sense that Israel was the Old Testament people of God, in a sense, the Old Testament church, now the church includes us Gentiles and spiritual Israel, as it always had done. And so you're either devoted to Christ or you're devoted to destruction. Now that sounds kind of harsh. Um, 
and I, it, you know, if that's the message of the church, you're either devoted to the church or you're devoted to destruction. Now, do people hear that differently? You mean the church, the church. All right, so we know what we mean. We know, I know what the Bible means when it refers to the church, but we could say you're either devoted to Christ or you're devoted to destruction. But when we say that, to be devoted to Christ means to be devoted to the body of Christ. Okay? We're engrafted into the body of Christ. We're baptized into the body of Christ. We're baptized into the covenant people of God. We're baptized into his promises. We become a part of the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? The church. Okay? Now that doesn't mean that every single church is an actual member of the body of Christ. There are apostate churches. There are false churches. There are, as the Bible calls them, some churches that have so far gone away from Scripture that they are now called synagogues of Satan. So when we talk about, when I talk about the church from up here, if I just use that term, what I mean is the body of believers who are called together to be under elders and deacons and in a particular body, a local body, so that you can um, serve one another and encourage one another and meet together and get to know one another. But we're no less a member of one another than we are with our brothers and sisters in China or Iran or Haiti or wherever it may be. That we're all a part of one body, the body of Christ. So, you're either devoted to Christ you're either devoted to the church or you're devoted to destruction. And so you might say, yeah, prove it. All right, we'll prove it from Scripture. So let's go to John chapter 3. And John chapter 3 is where um, John 3.16 is, surprisingly. And that's what a lot of people know. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. So that's where we're going to be, John 3. And we can begin right there, John three sixteen. <clears throat> you know, so that we would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, so this is the purpose of Christ coming to save the world. Christ didn't come to condemn it, he came to save it. So what's the purpose of the church? We don't go into the world to condemn it. We go into the world that it might be saved through him. And then it continues. So let's start there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So this is the, the issue, is Jesus didn't come to condemn it. He came into a condemned world. He came into a world that was set under the ban, a, a world that has been set under complete and total destruction. This is the world he came into, except for people who had been saved from the garden and from Adam and Eve forward by trusting in the covenants of God, the promises of God, even in the Old Testament, as they look forward to his coming and therefore are saved in the same way as we who come after the cross now are saved by looking back 
to the fact that he has come and has died on the cross. The only difference between how we're saved in the Old Testament and how we're saved in the New Testament is the Old Testament faith looks forward and the New Testament faith looks back. Of course, we also look forward to new heavens and new earth, but the point of salvation was found, found on the cross. Hebrews 11 is a clear testimony of that. By faith, the people of old were saved. So it's always been by faith. It's always been by faith. And so the statement is true for us. You're either devoted to Christ or you're devoted to destruction. On this side of the cross, the Old Testament, they were either devoted to Christ. And it even says that Abraham, um, looking to see my day, that Moses, um, saw, that Moses, um, oh, it's in Hebrews 11, I believe, that, that he, he um, in some way, he knew Christ without knowing him by name, but he had this faith in the Christ to come. So it's the same faith from beginning to the end in Jesus Christ. The only way anyone is ever saved is by Jesus Christ. First Adam comes, world plunged into destruction. The second Adam now has enabled people to be saved. So you're either devoted to the church, to Christ, or you're devoted to destruction. And that's the world that this king finds himself in. The Gibeonites said, we're going to do whatever it takes to get, get in good with Israel. The king of Jerusalem says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to defeat Gibeon. Because the Bible also teaches that if they hate Jesus, then they'll hate us. And that comes up in John 3 as well. John 3, 19. It says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what's true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. So this is what we have. So we get to verse 3 in um, Joshua chapter 10. So I hope you didn't lose your place there. Joshua chapter 10, verse 3. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Jephiah, king of Lachish, to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. So there's a couple of things in here. One, verse 4, it's kind of significant that they don't say that they've made peace with just Israel. And they don't say they've made peace with the people of Israel and Israel's God, but he has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. This is going to be significant in a, in a bit, but the name of Joshua has become great. Joshua is the leader of this, of this people. So Joshua falls, then Israel falls. Joshua represents Christ in a lot of ways here, but he is the head of Israel right now following after Yahweh, following after God. But they make, he recognizes the fact that Gibeon has made peace with Joshua. So Joshua's name is known. And the people of Israel. And so then we go to 
Um, and, and this is what will happen to you become equated with Christ, you become associated with Christ, you become associated with the church, you become associated with the Bible, you become associated with whatever those people are to these people over here. And you have people who aren't saved and they hate the light. It's just what the Bible says about people who aren't believers. They hate the light and they're not going to come into the light. So what happens with us? Well, we become light. So you can see what's the problem is we are light in a world that hates the light. So imagine some science fiction movie and you come to this land of darkness. People have the ability to see, but there is no light. And then light comes in and they just hate it. And they've got to put that light out and they have to do everything they can to stop that light. And they just, and that's what the world is that we're in. And it's difficult for us to see that because some people are so nice about the way they hate the light. You know, we're Southerners. We're very nice about the way we talk about people behind their backs after they leave. But, you know, we're gracious. God bless them. You know, it's just, but make no mistake about it. Um, You don't want to be hated just because you're a jerk about things. You know, make sure if we have an offense, it's the offense of the cross that's coming across the people. But you will be hated the more your light penetrates into their darkness and they won't listen. And they will do what is necessary to put that light out. But a lot of times they don't have to do anything because we work very hard to make our light less bright so that we are not offensive. And then because we want to be liked. We want to win people over with friendship. But, you know, it's good motivation. We want to win people over by, you know, psychologizing or loving and nurturing and all these things. And nothing's wrong with that stuff. But if we use that in order that we don't have to have the true light come in to their lives, because as soon as we do that, there's resistance. And so what do you do when you're working with somebody? You, you you know, you hit resistance, and so you start going a different way. You hit resistance, you start going a different way. You hit resistance. It's like it's that point of resistance is where everything happens. And, and that's when you lose people. So um, we've all seen it, whether it's family, friends, whatever it is. When you start to address a per- like everybody has these outworkings of sin, these, these problem areas I have, and it's like, okay, we can work on these things, but these things have a root right here, and that's that thing that needs to be worked on, and it really is the outworking of all your problems, and people will fight and scratch, and it's like a drowning person. You better know you're going to get pulled down because people protect whatever this is that causes a lot of these other outworkings, and we can work on these things, but it's like cancer. You can treat symptoms. But it's got to be, that, the thing's got to be rooted out. It's got to, it's got to go. That's a saying from my father. One time I had a, anyway, I've said it now. I had a thing on my back. <laughs> it's like a little bump. He's like, oh, that's got to go. That's got to go. So it's been a thing in my family. We, keep, we find something. It's like, that's got to go. But as soon as you find this thing in a person's life that, that is something that they've never addressed and they've always protected because they think, I don't know, they fear if they go there, it's going to undo them. Um, they, they, if I act like this, things are going to go bad for me, whatever it is, you start to hit that crucial 
point in a person's life and they will protect it. And Jesus says, I am the light. I'm shining a light on your problems. And people don't want to have that light. So God must do something in a person's heart to cause them to want to see this light. And we see it in our own lives as that is a progressive thing too. There's a certain amount of us still we fight against the light. If it's protecting some sin that we we know's there, but we still kind of want to nurture it and use it because I need it. Because if I let it go, I won't be able to live. And I got it. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit starts working. And here you are representing God. And you say something. And you're going to be hated. You're, you represent all of these things. And this king decides where they're going to, you know, the Gibeonites are going to say, well, I want to become part of this. Or you got the other kings are going to say, we're going to gather our forces together and we're going to attack. And so both of these happen. Then we get to verse 6. So what's Gibeon to do? And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up. In other words, don't let us, don't let us go. You're holding, you're, you've got us in your hand. Don't let us go. Come up to us quickly. And save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. And so, I mean, you have to see, you know, it's not hard to make a similarity to see what, what does this have to do with our lives. Because we often see this array, things are, it seems like everything is closing in. Um, the forces of evil, the forces of whatever, everything bad is happening. It's like all this, just this closing in. Just this, you know, there's the armies are all encamped. So what do they do? They're full of warriors. Full of warriors. And that's part of the problem. They knew they were full of warriors. So we've doubled our efforts. We've, we've surrounded them with five kings. You know, we're not going to go in and attack one by one. And so Gibeon, basically, they pray. They send the message and they call themselves, when they call it, contact Joshua, they say, your servants, your servants, because that was part of the curse too, is that they were, they were, they were blessed by being allowed to live, but they also received a curse where they had to be servants in the land. And we see that not as a curse today, but as a blessing to be able to be a servant. And so they were actually receiving a, a blessing even in the midst of their cursing. But they're saying, we're your servants. And they're reminding them in that of something that's very important. But this prayer, we see it in the psalm, Psalm twenty-two, nineteen, 19. Even, which I believe, which is, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. And then we get to verse 19. And it's, it's believed that this is... Um, Jesus quoting Psalm 22, or is Psalm 22 quoting Jesus in the cross forward? But as we, it talks about the crucifixion in Psalm 22 from the Old Testament and in verse 19. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. You are my help. Come quickly to my aid. It's a prayer of the believer. It's a prayer of, of even Christ on the cross, his sins being added to him. It should be the, our cry to God, come quickly, oh save, Lord Jesus. We see it in, at the end of Revelation 22.20. Jesus says, surely I am coming quickly. And then the writer says, amen, come, Lord Jesus. Because we see the need and necessity that we're being surrounded and that we need 
this help. And we know this feeling. Anxiety. And we just want relief. We just want rescue. And he doesn't, he says, you know, save us, help us. Maybe you should say, well, help us and save us. It's like, just well, help us, save us, deliver us, come to my aid. Come, it's just whatever you mount up where you're crying out to God, this is, I need your help. Please help us or we're undone. So what makes Gibeon think they're going to respond? Why even cry out to them? And we cry out to God. We assume there's a God that's there for doing that. We assume there's a God who can hear. But the better question is, will he actually come to our aid? Will God actually help us? Why would God answer our prayers? Why do we trust that God could be for us and help us? Well, first, it's because of the character of God to help his people. But then there's something bigger at work. And it's what the Gibeonites knew about. It's what the Gibeonites were depending on. It's what the Gibeonites did their deception for. It's the reason they feel like they can cry out and their only hope is still their only hope and that Joshua will come when they call. And it's because of a covenant. It's because of a promise that's been made. It's because God has set up by his word and guaranteed by his character that he will obey and fulfill his covenant promises that he makes to people. And that's where our hope lies with our God, too, is that God has made promises and we can depend on him to fulfill his promises. Much of our problem is we don't know what the promises of God are. That we oftentimes look at the nation of Israel and all the things that were promised to the nation of Israel and say we need to get all that stuff that's promised to them. And because we're the church now, so all that's been promised to us. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But some of these things are going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. Because Israel's role was to be the, the nation of God with Jesus as their king to take over the physical land of the earth and to do it as a, as a military kingdom that is fighting for God. And, they are, and it is his arm of justice. So that the people in this land are wicked and evil and they deserve to be destroyed. And Israel is acting as that arm of justice. Now, is that who we are? Is that the role of the church today? To go into the land and, and defeat and fight and kill the people who are opposed to Christ? And hopefully you realize that it is not that the role of Christ. He has come into the world not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we go into the world. Making disciples, converting people from darkness into light, sharing the gospel with people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You can pretty up people for hell. You can make people who are doing bad things do better things. You can make people who are their lives are spiraling downward. You can make them where maybe they spiral upward a little bit. But if they're going to hell, they're going to hell. And without faith in Christ, that's where they're headed because even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, and we will do good things for sinful motivation. The gospel is what gets to the heart of a person. And it is the light. And people hate the light. 
But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So they begin to be converted. So the light begins to be something they want more of. I want some of this light. I want more of this light. And all of a sudden you get some people that get so much light, they go around, they're like great big old spotlights out there blinding everybody with their light. Yeah, look at my light. You know, they become this zealous person that's just received the good things of Christ and you can't stand it anymore and it's just all out there and it's wide open and you don't have a lot of knowledge yet necessarily but you just want people to know and then gradually over time we'll teach you more and more and we'll teach you how you shouldn't be like that and we'll have you sit in a pew and be quiet and be very good at theology and keep your mouth shut and leave people alone and that kind of thing so you know there's you become lukewarm in other words and we don't we shouldn't do that. We need to find ways to say, look what he's done. Look who I am. We become complacent so that we're we're if we if if we were like the Gibeonites, if the Gibeonites were like us, they just said, We got lots of mighty men, let's go fight them ourselves. Or they just said, I don't know what we're worried about. You know, let's go out and make friends with them. Let's make peace covenants with them. You know, let's do this. Let's make friends with the world. But they already knew you couldn't do that. And we already know we can't do this. So we have to be able to let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And it's a tricky thing. But you stay focused in Scripture. When you're talking to people, you, that's why you need to know your Bible well. Because when when the angel even appeared, the angel... Satan appears as an angel of light. You have Satan show up. He's going to look good. He's going to sound good. He'll smell good. He's going to, everything about him is going to seem good and right. C.S. Lewis in uh, screw tape letters in his introduction says um, he, he listened to Hitler on the radio because he's writing during this time. And he says, you know, you listen to him and it, it sounds good and it sounds right. He says, unless you knew the truth, and then you recognize that he was lying. And that's the key. You had to know the truth. There's lots of things that people say about Christianity, that people say about the church, that say about reality, and it sounds good. It sounds true. It sounds reasonable and right. But it is a theology from hell because it disagrees with Scripture. And then you'll recognize it and you'll go... I see where you're going with this. God didn't say we couldn't eat from any tree in the, the whole garden. He just said that one. You know, so that's how Satan works. So we have to be careful that we call and we know that he will answer because of his great and true promises to us. Then we get to verse 7. So Joshua... So this cry has been made. Joshua, he goes up from Gilgal where he was. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And Yahweh says to Joshua. So now we get to see, you know, all right, Joshua and them made a covenant. And they're trying to, they're saying we got to keep this covenant now, even though it was made under deceptive means. But what's the Lord going to say? And you see a little bit, I think, of the idea in the New Testament of what you bound on earth is bound on earth. What was bound in heaven is bound in heaven. It's this thing you're speaking on my behalf. I will honor that. And so God says, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. 
all these other kings that are coming against Gibeon. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. So, and there's an interesting little scriptural thing in here with the Hebrew that's hard to tell who they're talking about. So it could read like we just read it, or it might read, um, the Lord, Yahweh, threw them into a panic before Israel. And Yahweh struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and Yahweh chased them. You know, is it Israel or Joshua? It's hard to tell who is who. And what we're going to see is, is both. That what we have to recognize about God is he is a warrior. He is a warrior. He is not just a gentle shepherd. He's that. But he's also a warrior. So verse 11. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones. These are those large stones the Lord's thrown down. There are more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So we had this great battle that's taken place. God kills more people than the people of Israel do by throwing hailstones down upon them. Hailstones. Hailstone, and so you have God is a warrior. He exacts vengeance on his enemies. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him, so that whoever believes in him would not perish. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Condemned by this God who fights with Israel and fights for you. So the question is not whose side is God on, it's whose side are you on. And so the Lord himself fights for his people. So we think about this. And we can, you know, if you want to, you know, what are you going through? And I think this is actual applicable application. Or you can say, you know, what battles am I fighting? Um, and then you have to ask, well, have I cried out to him? And, and does he hear me? Do you believe that, that he's for you? That he is at work? That, that, that we might think he's slow? That, that his timing, we have to recognize his timing is not our timing. He has more things at work than we know about, and it's all working together for our good, and we have to be aware of this. So his timing is not our timing, and he doesn't see timing as we do, but you have to get this too. He's never late. Okay? God is never late. He may not come when we want and how we want, but he does it just right. And his word tells us that if you're trusting in Christ, he's for you. And if you're his servants and you're his children, he told Joshua, don't fear them. I've given, given them into your hand, but they still had to fight the battle. And so it's something you can't miss with this. I've given them into your hand, but they still had to fight the battle. But God does more killing than they do. So if we're to go forward and we're supposed to be sharing the gospel, God's saving more people than we are. Of course, he's saving people through us, too. But as we look at what's happening, you know, how these trickles of, 
you know, you go out and you do this and somebody does this, you know, God is at work and he doesn't work apart from us, but he works through us and our prayers and for us and all these different ways in salvation through the gospel, um, through his people, but also all these different things are at work. You know, that we don't see how is God at work in these ways that we don't see and he is strongly at work. But with the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 6, we can say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So God is for us. And he says, so if God is for you, who can be against you? And then I want to get before we close, I want to get at least to this miraculous sign that we see. And this is in verse 12 through 15. So it goes back, you know, we see the, the battle is pictured. The Hebrews, they do this a lot. They'll give you a big picture and then they'll close in a little bit more on it. And then they give you a little more specific detail. And this is going back to some specific detail about this battle. He says, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, this is Joshua speaking. He says, son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jeshar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel." So Joshua turned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. I like that little thing at the end. Wait a minute. And Joshua returned. Is it okay? What about this thing? And it's somewhat, there's, it's debated as to what actually happened. You know, it looks like the sun stopped and the moon stopped. Okay, good. Did the earth stop spinning? Did these, you know, what did, and it's even debated. It's like, it might not actually mean that they stopped, but that the light somehow refracted whatever it was from man's point of view, this was a miracle. And it was a miracle because it stayed there for some reason. But if you start to go back and you say, okay, scientifically what occurred, let's go back and get these astrology charts, astronomy charts and all these things and try to figure out what happened. It's like, no, whatever it was, was a, mir a miracle. It was a clear miracle because Joshua was being identified with God and Josh, Israel was being identified with God. So when Joshua speaks, the Lord listened and did what Joshua said to authenticate for everyone watching because Moses had been the one who had been the leader and Joshua needs to be continually recognized as the new representative of God. And the Lord obeys him in the way that it's worded here. And so there's a book. So you start looking this up. A lot of people. Sun Stand Still. Stephen Furtick wrote a book called Sun Stand Still. I never read it. So I decided I'm going to look up about the book and see what he says about, about this verse. So I'm going to look at it in a negative light from what I read about it. But I have not read the book. So I'm not saying it's a bad book. But just what's said about it. Where they're trying to sell it. This is from the Amazon page. And you read what it says about the book. I didn't want to have to read the whole book in order to talk about it. So I just wanted to get, you know, this, this thing. So here's the quote. If you are not daring to believe, and I'm not attacking Stephen Furtick. I'm just this particular thing. If you are not daring to believe God for the impossible, you may be sleeping through some of the best 
parts of your Christian life. Now, I believe that's true. And if I could preach like this all the time, I just feel like it's just like, if you're not daring, I don't want to mock people, but I mean, it's how it feels. If you are not daring to believe God, daring to believe God to do the impossible, the impossible. What in your life right now do you see as impossible? What do you think it is? What's impossible? That's where your faith needs to be. That's where it goes. Believe God for that. You might be sleeping through some of the best parts of your Christian life. I believe that. People sleeping through. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. He's believing God for the impossible. Your faith can activate that possibility. Sun stands still. Hurricane stop. Addiction cease. God just had more faith. If you had more faith, you can make these things happen. Don't you have more faith? Oh, we need more faith. Don't we band? No, we don't have the band. And this is emotions. And the further quote somebody that was writing about it. I'm, well, he says, I'm, I'm just, I am making fun of him. I'm sorry, but it needs to be mocked. I'm out to activate your audacious faith, to inspire you to ask God for the impossible. Can't you just see getting people, I mean, I get excited talking about that. I'm going to start speaking in tones if I'm not careful. To inspire you to ask God for the impossible, that you would begin living a life of faith beyond the ordinary. And you know what happens? Ordinary seeps in. And where's God? God's in the ordinary. God is in the ordinary. And the more you believe that there has to be some miraculous sun standing still, that there has to be tremendous outworkings, the more you're missing when he just says, be still and know that I'm God. I'm in control. I know you're suffering. I know you have anxiety. I know. But he doesn't say, I mean, there are people who believe this completely. If it takes faith, then where is it? God does do miraculous things. God heals. God motivates. God moves. God does amazing, miraculous things. But it's not because we had some audacious faith that has now connected with him in a way that he's able to do the impossible. That's not what this passage is about. I wish that Christians would live ordinary lives of faith. Too many people are looking for the miracle, the entertaining, the exciting. People want to be shaken from their ordinary, drab, anxious lives. And Jesus says, I'll give you rest. The Christian life should be ordinary but it's not an ordinary, normal, based on miracles. We know God can do great things. But it's ordinary, praying, loving, believing Christians that are amazing and powerful through whom the world will be saved. Ordinary men and women, children of God, who have been transformed and just live their lives differently. Giving knowledge and acknowledgement to God. The one who created the Son. The one who stopped the sun. The one who said, be still. And the wind and the sun, the wind and the seas obeyed. It was still. The one who said, peace, be still to your hearts. And there was peace and there was stillness. The one who said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, from dead, 
comes forth. The one who said, believe and we believe. God authenticated Joshua and his leadership. And he authenticated Christ's leadership, his headship. We need to be like the Gibeonites and recognize when we're surrounded, it's to him we have to cry because we have covenants. We've been baptized into the covenant of God. We've received the Lord's Supper, renewal ceremony of the covenant. I'll be with you. I feed you. You depend on me. You must have me. You must depend on me. And then the ordinary faith, acting in the little tiny moments of life that make the biggest differences when it's just kindness is what sends stuff off into great trajectories. A small word of encouragement to somebody that just makes them remember it for years to come. Just small prayers of faith uttered. Mercy, grace, forgiveness, these things lived out in an ordinary Christian life that recognizes that God can make the sun stand still. And he's got it. And I don't have to. So let's pray. Father God, help us. I don't mean to make fun of Stephen Furtick. I just, I just think it's easy to get called up into... Um, Trying to excite people to great things. That's a motivation, I understand. And maybe, I don't know. But it, it help us, God, to know that we don't make the sun stand still. That's not our call. We're the people of Israel. We just obey. We follow. We're the Gibeonites. We're supposed to cry out for help and know that you will save us. That we know that though you slay us, you, that we, we're still yours. You still love us. Even that, if we fall... That we are to bear our cross, you tell us. Unjust suffering. We're to bear it. We're to move forward. We're to strive for Christ-likeness even in the midst of very great difficulties. And you come to our aid. You'll strengthen us. You show us ways of escape from temptation. You tell us to cast our anxiety on you because you care for us, Lord. Keep us focused on you. There's nothing more important than you in our life that we must make sure we're orbiting around you like the planets around the sun or if we spin out of control Lord we are lost so we thank you that you love us just like we are and that you love us too much to leave us like this hear our prayer make us more like you help us to see the miraculous in the mundane and help us to know that every day you just say, do it again. And the sun comes up and the sun goes down. But it's really the earth spinning round and round. Because you've set these things in place. And you'll keep them in place until the last day. Because you promised to. So we thank you. Be with us. Help us to cling tightly to you. To trust in you. To know that you come to our aid and our rescue. And in your name we pray, in Jesus Christ. Amen.